is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today is the launch day of the Rebel Diaries Anthology, so I thought I would give you a little bit of a treat and a sneak peek at our stories. So there are 13 stories in the anthology, and each author has kindly recorded a 60-second clip of them reading an excerpt from their story. So I thought, yes, I would compile them, I would let you know who the authors are and uh, hopefully encourage all of you delightful listeners to go and pick up a copy. So there's not going to be any preamble, we're going to dive straight into the stories and what I thought would be fun is if we went in the order of the stories in the book. I'm going to include links from each author in the show notes so that you can both, one, get a copy of the anthology, but two, find out more about the authors and connect with them on socials. So very first up, we have Pearl's Tea by Scott Williamson. Pearl had run out of tea. Now to any normal, healthy, old age pensioner, running out of tea isn't a huge problem. They would just pop to the shops and get some more. Not Pearl. Her knees creaked, her hip ached, and her tits chafed against her thighs. And that was just standing still. Her popping to the shops days were over. She would make it to the end of the care home drive and pish herself from the effort and pain before being wheeled back inside by one of the care assistants. She could, of course, send one of those useless bastard assistants to pick her up some tea bags. Sure. But the tea Pearl drank wasn't the standard swill drank by the pish-smelling, biscuit-chewing old goats she shared the Helping Hands care home with. This tea was different. Special. Next in, we have Kimberly Grimes reading Little Orphan Aggie. Seven years I've been living in this ruler-smacking hellhole. Some girls don't mind it, but other girls, like me, can't wait to leave. I'm surrounded by cranky nuns and whiny brats. I ain't complaining too much. There's a solid roof over my head and half-decent meals three times a day. But still, there's got to be something better out there. A life where others are doing gratitude chores for me. I hate scrubbing toilets, washing windows, sweeping stairs, and whatever else the nuns think we should do for what they call gratitude time. What goop came up with, thank you for taking me in and not leaving me on the street, gratitude chores is beyond me. For the most part, I can tolerate all that bull. Everyone, young and old, has got to work for a living, right? What I hate the most about this orphan gig are the the what-the-fuck-not-again weekends. Same thing every weekend. Next in is me, Sasha Black, with 15 minutes of fame. Caleb Pryor was broke, horny, and about to lose his minimum wage radio station job. Two of the three were problems, though which two he couldn't quite settle on. He could, however, solve one of them. He whipped out his phone and sent a text. Denise said they were dating and had been for six months. But Caleb was a lifelong bachelor and was insistent it was just sex. Denise, however, was equally insistent that if Caleb wanted to continue receiving blowjobs while she wore the lip-tingling gloss, then they were dating. 
Caleb rather rapidly agreed that they were, in fact, dating. Though out of earshot, he continued to claim his bachelor status anyway. It's safe to say that Caleb's best days were long gone. Despite his reality TV fame in the noughties, 20 years on, the frequent B, C and ultimately Z list parties filled with copious amounts of free booze, bad sex and lines of coke had taken their toll. Next in, we have Helen Glynn Jones with a bit of both. Being a supervillain wasn't easy, not when new heroes seemed to appear every week. There was the upkeep of a lair for starters, all those locks and secret chambers and traps, not to mention how tough it was to keep sharks. And don't even mention the time the hyenas fell in the shark tank. Black Anvil closed his eyes, shaking his head. The assistant who'd left the gate open had followed the hyenas into the water. He'd seen to that. At least the sharks had been well fed that day. But then he'd had to get a new assistant and a new pack of hyenas and the government tended to be a lot stricter about importing animals now or paperwork this and do they have enough food and water that. He thought of feeding the pompous official to the creatures, but he'd needed that rubber stamp. He rolled his eyes, floating higher. The clouds wreathed around him, cold fingers of mist caressing his skin, curling along the purple velvet, expensive but worth it, of his cloak, reminding him of how things used to be. Iron Maiden had arrived at his lair one night, a young, brash villain in the making. Next in, we have A.E. Kincaid with The Demon, The Hero and The Forest of Arden. So you're a demon then? he asked. The tone of his voice implied that he was hoping I would deny it. Malgon Belroth Kiranith, 15th of his name, Lord of the Underworld Suburb of Artifice on Leith, at your service, I recited, bowing deeply. My hero's eyebrows rose. Impressive. Thank you, I said, dipping my head slightly. The boy's brow furrowed. But where's your tail? You just look like a fine gentleman to me. I pursed my lips. I don't have one. Why not? Because, okay? It was a sore subject for me as it reflected a deficit in my overall level of evilness compared to other demons, something I hoped to change during this visit. I didn't like talking about it with anyone, and I certainly wasn't going to discuss it with this idiot, so I changed the subject. So, you're a capital H hero, then? He looked skyward, as if the answer were written in the clouds. Well, yeah, as of, like, an hour ago. My name's Reginald. Sir Reginald P. Ashtraddle now. Up next is L.F. Wham with The Book Thieves. Mel smiled. So, Becca, what are we going to do? What do you mean? Well, I'm here for this book. You won't admit it, but you're here for this book. Two thieves after the same trinket isn't the ideal situation. I'm all for some healthy competition, but on the same job, more potential for mistakes. Clumsiness. Becca didn't answer, though she agreed. See, I'm thinking our options are, one of us can see and goes home. Mel leaned forward, examining her. Becca's cheeks rose from warm to hot, but she refused to look away. But something tells me you're not one to back down. And I'm certainly not. Option two, we both carry on with our plans to steal the book. Winner takes all. But as I said, that doesn't tend to end well. So that leaves us with option three. Becca expected her to continue. When she didn't, she was forced to ask, what's option three? Mel beamed. I am so glad you asked. Option three, Mel leaned forward conspiratorially. We work together. Next in, we have Val Neal and the story Insatiable. Nikolai inhaled deeply. The scent of bread was getting stronger. Unfortunately, the students ahead of him were taking their sweet time moving through the passageway, and it was too narrow for him to squeeze by. The academy really ought to widen some of the tunnels, 
but they'd been carved centuries ago and no one wanted to risk breaking whatever enchantments had been worked into the stone. A student ahead clipped the low ceiling. He paused to let out a string of expletives while his friends laughed and teased. Nikolai leaned against the coarse granite and waited for them to get out of the way. The dining hall was agonizingly close. He could almost taste the bread. Damn it, this was taking too long. Hurry up, he called to the boys ahead. The laughing stopped and the students craned their necks to see around one another. Why, said the closest to him. You got someplace important to be? Yeah, your girlfriend asked me to meet her. Seems you're not getting the job done. The boy scoffed. You're what, 13? Probably never even been with a girl. 15, and you're right. But as your girlfriend's asking me for help, that says more about your skill than mine. There was a chorus of oohs and guffaws, and soon the boys further up the chamber were pulling their sour-faced friend through the gap. Next up, we have Spin Cycle by J. Renee Lawrence. When four o'clock came, with no response, I packed up early, stuffed myself into my Ford Taurus, and drove to Studio City with my horns sticking out of the sunroof. That smiley face he sent haunted me, and I needed to make sure my friend was okay. Ghoul has always been reserved. In all the years we've been friends, he spoke very little of his past or his family. What I did know was that Ghoul was adopted at a young age, and grew up in one of those states that like their monsters ugly and their heroes muscly, with dimpled butt cheeks squeezed into lycra. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things, in my opinion, but there's no tolerance for stepping outside the nicely drawn boundaries of who should be good and who should be evil. From what I understand, it's one of those places that send what they consider to be confused young villains to camps that scare the good away. This is particularly problematic, given that Ghoul, a flesh-eating undead demon, identifies as a hero. Next in, we have Mark Leslie Lefebvre with The Exquisite Taste of a Book-Aged Skull. Alas... Great Uncle Nathan, Herb triumphantly stated, holding the pale orb on an extended arm a few feet from his face. There is nothing quite like the exquisite taste of a book-aged skull. There wasn't the faintest hint of an echo, as his words were absorbed by the insulating effects of the packed bookshelves. He moved his focus from the empty eye sockets of the skull he'd been holding to gaze in admiration at the book spines, occasionally broken by the pale, ironic grin of a human skull. Twenty-three human skulls of die-hard, lifelong raiders, housed on shelves alongside a prestigious collection of first-edition books, the result of a lifetime of collecting. It had started off, innocently enough, with just a single skull, long before it evolved into a collection. Next in is J. Ember Hints with The Follower. He leaned against the gnarled tree trunk, the sore muscles in his back and shoulders relaxed as he gave into the weight of his eyelids. Lost somewhere between detached awareness and a dream, the cemetery and church disappeared. He was still lying beneath the tree, but he was no longer alone. Clayton Dunnan. Her garbled voice broke over his name like water slipping over rocks in a stream. She cocked her head to the side in a curious posture, her pale skin mimicked by the odd linen dress she wore. The oversized garment hung from her body like a filthy choir robe. He shuffled to his feet. D -d Do I know you? Clay tried to place her face. In her early to mid-twenties, if he had to guess. An old college conquest, perhaps? There were way too many parties and bourbon-blurred nights to remember everyone he'd fucked. 
Still, there was something familiar in the way her head lolled above her neck, something that sat like a lead brick in his stomach. Next up, we have Megan J. Dahl with The Feathers You Wear. Shadow Man had had hundreds of dalliances before, amusements to pass the time, but Elena was different. He loved her in a way he couldn't name, in a way that smacked of destiny, and despite his disdain for the word, he'd been drawn in. In a thousand years, he'd never asked anyone to share his life, his strange existence, until now. But it seemed she had decided against the idea. He reached into his coat, pulled out a large engraved flask, and took a deep swig, feeling the burn work its way through him. If only it could burn out the place where his heart used to be. How dare you bring the devil's drink into this house of God? Father Egan stood in the aisle, stiff with outrage, or perhaps it was just his collar. Shadow Man felt a little outraged himself. Elena's uncle, the brother of the man he dreamed of killing. He felt venomous. He wanted to smash something, starting with this balding sack of fish guts. Restraint was going to be difficult. Next up, we have Matt Hollum and the White Harvester. It was his voice that decided it, the kind of voice that no amount of rum could curb. It rose above the din of the smoky tavern, loud, boisterous, and laced with an unearned arrogance. Lapis had dealt with countless like this, and they were all the same, thinking they were God's gift when they weren't even Satan's shit. There was nothing better than hearing those oily voices slip into screams. She narrowed her eyes at the man as he told anyone that would listen in crass detail about the mermaid he'd fucked. She knew it was a lie because if he really had fucked the mermaid, his bloated corpse would be at the bottom of the ocean and crabs would be picking the flesh off his bones. But instead he was here, still talking. His crew clapped along like the trained seals they were. Why were men so loud? She turned her attention away from her target. He wouldn't be going anywhere. She sipped her dark rum and tried not to gag on the stale haze of tobacco and urine settling on every grimy surface like ash. She longed for the smell of salt and gunpowder, for the sun to be down on her bronze skin as she paced along the deck of the White Harvester. She longed for the sea. And last, but by no means least, we have J.A. Mortimer with When the Circus Came to Town. It would be wrong to say that the Grand Library at Chattery's Arbor had never seen such a gathering, but the crowd that spilled in when the doors opened was the equal of any in its past. As well as most of the town's movers and shakers, tourists had come from far and wide. For once, their interest was not in the best collection of books and scrolls in the country, but instead the focus of attention was the crown jewels of Freeland, safely displayed on black velvet in a glass dome at the very centre of the massive atrium. Fashionably clad men and women could be seen pushing and shoving to be the first to exclaim over the glittering array. The choker with its massive faceted emerald was accompanied by a pair of matching earrings, but it was the crown with its diamond-encrusted spikes that elicited the loudest cries of admiration. A bevy of security men glowered at anybody who got too close, and it was rumoured the best spellcasters in town had warded the glass dome. Fuck me, this is boring. Rhea Matthews hid a yawn behind her hand. Dulles Ditchwater, her fellow librarian, Marion agreed, and my feet hurt. I see your best buddy Jordan is briefing the security guy and his mages. So he should, he's the sheriff, and he's not my best anything. He'd like to be, Marion smirked. He's always hanging around you. He might be worth the night's... She broke off, a flash of colour in the atrium catching her attention. Oh my, who's the hottie in the plumed hat? Rhea glanced in the direction indicated, and her eyes widened. Cassidy Morganstern. The Cassidy Morganstern? Look sharp, he's headed this way. Marion patted her bob of hair self-consciously. 
You're a respectable married woman, Maria reminded her friend. A girl can look, can't she? Okay, that is it for the 13 sneak peeks of each of the stories in the Rebel Diaries anthology. If one or all of the stories has piqued your interest, then I'm going to encourage you to go and grab yourself a copy of the anthology. You can do that using the links in the show notes or follow the link books, the number two, read.com forward slash rebel diaries. That's books to read.com forward slash rebel diaries. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.